Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. We will kick things off here. Uh, like I said, uh, we have a family Sunday school day, so some uh, people are in that, so they're missing out because today is hopefully going to be a tour de force. Uh, we are, like I said, trying to wind down the book of Acts as we're in this last section about Paul's uh, arrest in Jerusalem and final trials that will lead him to Rome. And in in the book of Acts, this really does kind of fit its own section. Uh, up until this point, well, what we've been doing the most recently has been following Paul on those missionary journeys. And this is obviously something very different. And yet it does still fit the ultimate purpose of the book of Acts, not as a biography of Paul, but of an expansion of the gospel. Way back in the first chapter, Jesus talked about how the the disciples, now apostles, would be eyewitnesses, and they they would bring the news of Jesus, uh, not just in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And Paul's arrest actually serves that purpose. It may not have been the way you'd on paper plan, how's the gospel going to get out, Um but even along the way, we've noted that the gospel has gotten out. Uh, Paul has met other Christians along the way from other parts of the Roman Empire, and uh, some know all of the story, some know a little bit of the story. The, the word has successfully gotten out. One thing to kind of note in this section of Acts is that a lot of people have seen a unity in the book of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And at the very beginning of class, we kind of pointed out a little bit of the continuity that uh, Luke sort of wrote of the first gospel. This is the things that Jesus had done and said. And then in the book of Acts are the things that he has continued to, to do and say. So the book of Acts, even for Luke, is all about Jesus. And we've seen that Jesus is, uh, has a, a very central role and he does here even at the end. He's going to pop up into the story a few more times. Well, like the book of the gospel shows the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel of Luke has very clear design. It's uh, noted narratively a few times that there's a turning point in the second half of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sets his face to go toward Jerusalem. And in our Gospel reading today, the Transfiguration, we have kind of allusions to that as it's in all of the Gospels because it was part of his ministry. But Luke 
very clearly points it out uh, in the in the second part of his gospel that Jesus is making that journey. And then as Jesus continues to teach his disciples in the crowds, Luke is very um, specific about adding uh, these little signposts that this is while he was journeying, while he was on his way to Jerusalem. So Luke isn't just throwing the teachings in there. He's putting them on Jesus's course of ministry as he goes to Jerusalem as the ultimate fulfillment of his ministry, because there Jesus will be handed over to the authorities. There he will suffer. There he will die. But on the third day, he will rise again. And this is ultimately Jesus's glory. This is why he was here in the first place. And in the book of Acts, we have now a similar thing happening. It happens at the tail end of the book, but there is this push to Jerusalem. This time, instead of following Jesus to Jerusalem, we're following Paul. But we know as he was ending that third missionary journey, all of a sudden, through the Holy Spirit, he knows, I must go to Jerusalem. And he knows that that's not necessarily going to be a good journey. Like Jesus, Jesus, his face is set toward Jerusalem. He knows what awaits. He knows that he is going to suffer and die there, but he must go there nonetheless because that is the fulfilling of his ministry. And the same is going to be true for Paul. And then when they get into Jerusalem, we note that there are similar kind of experiences that Jesus and Paul have, that they are both falsely arrested. That is, that there is false witness born against both of them things that are not true, that are distortions, you know, and the charges are very similar. They speak against the law. Jesus was uh, uh, at odds with some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees over some of his teachings. Not that Jesus uh, disagreed with or taught differently than the law of Moses, but that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had their own little skirmishes and disagreements because of their own traditions and customs over time, and uh, they didn't like some of the things that Jesus said, but also about the temple that Jesus, uh, we know in, in Holy Week, he chases the people out of the temple, the money changers and whatnot, and that can kind of upset people. But he also talked about destroying the temple and that he would rebuild it. And we know that Jesus was talking not about the temple, the bricks there, but he was talking about his own body, that the temple, God's gracious presence was ultimately not found in that building, but in Jesus's own person. Paul is going to be hung up for the same kind of thing, speaking against Moses, speaking against the temple, speaking against the Jewish people as a whole, which all are either completely false or else uh, there's a grain of truth to it, but it's misconstrued. And like Jesus, Paul is going to have different trials that he is going to go through. Uh, first of the local Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, but then ultimately to the Roman authorities as well. And just like with Jesus, there's no guilt to be found in Paul. He, he's clearly innocent, but nevertheless, he is going to fall prey to the various machinations of the different rivals that are against him and so forth. The Roman Empire, for their part, they're kind of just like Pontius Pilate was in Jesus's story. In the end, he doesn't really care about Jesus, 
Paul isn't really the one that they care about. They're caring about how do I manage these people and how, you know, how can I not like cause more conflict or riots or uprisings? But at the same time, how can I make sure that I would not be accused of, uh, of injustice? Because the Roman officials were still responsible for making sure that law and order and justice were followed. So um, they're kind of weaving that line. So this particular portion, that connection between Jesus and Paul, Luke is not doing this to say that Paul is a second Jesus or anything like that. Clearly, what Jesus has done is the ultimate thing. But it's more kind of in fulfillment of uh, Jesus' own words to Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake or for my name. Um, and as Paul uh, talks about in, in one of his letters, that, that he bears the, the marks of his Savior in him, that he is being conformed to the likeness of Jesus and undergoing the same kind of suffering that Jesus underwent. And Paul considers this not a cross that he bears, but truly a privilege that he is found worthy to suffer in the same way that Jesus does. But Luke is very clearly telling that story, that Paul is sharing in the sufferings of his Savior. The one kind of new thing that's happening here is that in one way we can see that what Jesus did on the cross is ultimately to to unify all people with God, to reconcile us all together again. And Paul's suffering in no way reconciles us. You know, he's not dying for anybody's sins. But at the tail end here, we know especially that as Paul is marked out as the apostle of the Gentiles, that his ministry was all about bringing the Gentiles into the church and that unity of Gentile and Jew, that we are all one people in Christ by God's grace, by faith in him. As Paul is coming here, he's bringing this offering that's from all of the churches in Asia and Macedonia. These are Gentile churches, and they're coming to the church in Jerusalem as this sign and token of love and unity. And Paul's message of this unity, this unity in Christ, is a message that ultimately is rejected by some of the Jews in Jerusalem. And just like in Jesus' day, when, you know, they, they reject Jesus and uh, say, you know, may his blood be on us and, and on our children, that the, the door is open for them, but they're going to be the ones that close that door, that door of God's grace. But even in the closing of the door in Jerusalem, we see conversely, the gospel continues to go out. It's going out to the whole world, even to the capital of the empire in Rome. And Paul is going to, again, have opportunity to to proclaim that gospel. So it's this last chunk of the book of Acts. It, it's doing all of that. There are there are books, uh, monographs written on this, this last part, Paul's journey to Jerusalem and making a lot of those connections. Um, I just kind of scratched the surface there, but you, again, I, I think this is Luke's artistry. 
that this is how he designed his books. You can see the unity, not of the gospel, but of his book here, the book of Acts as well, and what's going on. All right, so today, like I said, I'm going to we're going to cruise, but what I hope to accomplish is we're going to get Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. He had just arrived in Jerusalem uh, at the end of last class, and then we're going to go through his arrest and early trials in Jerusalem, and then he's going to be transferred to Caesarea, where he will remain imprisoned for two years. We're not going to talk about the two-year imprisonment. We'll save that for next week, but uh, hopefully we can get Paul to Caesarea. All right, so that puts us in chapter 21 of Acts, verse 17. Uh, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem uh, with some of the, the people that have accompanied him from these churches in Macedonia and Asia, and um, they're bringing that offering. Remember, Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, so this is a time when Jerusalem is bustling. Uh, Pentecost is one of those feasts uh, of the Jewish people in the Law of Moses, where they are uh, strongly encouraged to make that journey to Jerusalem, make the journey for uh, Passover, for Pentecost. Uh, and so here they are. They're in Jerusalem. Things are really, really busy. And who does he meet with? He meets with James. He meets with James and some of the elders. And it says that Paul is there with some of his people as well. So it's kind of this group meeting. We don't hear anything about any other apostles, not Peter or John or any of those. Um, again, they've kind of dropped off the radar one would think that if they were in the city of Jerusalem, they probably would have met with uh, Paul as well. So this is usually pretty strong evidence that Peter, John, all the other apostles, they're not there. James is kind of the one who he stayed in, in Jerusalem and he continued that ministry there. While the other apostles, they're here, there, and everywhere. They're kind of traveling about uh, in the in the area of Judea, perhaps beyond. There are different traditions of the early church about the apostles and where they all travel. Um, it's hard to know the veracity of some of those, but here, again, pretty much everybody agrees James is likely the only apostle left in the city at this time. And so he is the one that, that Paul comes to visit. That's kind of, you know, the, the meeting of the apostles. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. James, the apostle to the Jews here, especially in Jerusalem. And as they meet together, they're kind of able to, again, compare notes. It's been a while now since Paul has seen James. Uh, he was here in Acts 15 for the Jerusalem Council. They were able to, you know, talk and, and compare and where they made that pronouncement that the Gentiles, uh, they are an equal part of the body of Christ, not by following the law of Moses, but by faith in Jesus. But some of the customs of the Jews, it would be good if the Gentiles still uh, followed those, not for salvation's sake, but so that they wouldn't cause offense or stumbling to their Jewish brothers. They didn't have to be circumcised or any of that. They could if they wanted to, as Paul uh, has Timothy circumcised. But again, the, they, they, they do this out of love and concern for the other side, uh, Gentiles for the sake of the Jews. And so here, when they're comparing notes, uh, it's a wonderful time that Paul is able to talk about what God has done. 
And he uses those words, what God has done. Paul isn't here to to praise himself, to toot his own horn. This is not about, yeah, I'm I'm I have this following now, and you gotta take me seriously. You gotta listen to me. This is not a power play or anything like this. This is rejoicing together in God's work. And that's what happens with James. They they rejoice. They give thanks to God that the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. There are no doctrinal disagreements or anything like that. But James does raise one concern. Again, that relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul, you kind of have developed a little bit of a reputation, and James isn't here to accuse Paul of anything, but he wants Paul now that he's in Jerusalem, now that he's where Jews are all around, there are Christians as well, but now that he's where Jews are all around, be cognizant, they're watching you. They, they have you under a microscope. And some people have said that you're teaching uh, the Gentiles uh, contrary to the law of Moses. And so we, we, need to, we need to make sure that you do the right thing here because, again, Paul probably also, Luke doesn't mention this, but Paul probably does also mention some of the struggles that he had, the opposition that has come against him. And uh, again, especially at the time of Pentecost, when there are so many people in Jerusalem, just, you know, we're, we're going to make sure everything is, is okay. So um, we're at like 20, 20 and a half uh, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? So again, circumcision and their customs. That's the thing. It's It's not a question of salvation. This is going again to, we just have different ways, Jews and Gentiles, and it's it's a stumbling block. And they're not sure whose side you're on. And we're just going to tread very lightly in order to make sure that they know you have nothing against the customs. Uh, you, you, will, you would follow the customs too, um, out of love, not as a requirement to salvation, but because you... Contrary to what they say, don't teach against Moses. Um, so what is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So there's a lot here that's unsaid and we don't know for sure. But when they talk about this vow and um, we, we've come across this a, a couple, well, one other time that talked about people making a vow, it's usually going back to a Nazarite vow. Um, a Nazarite vow is to abstain from alcohol, to abstain from uh, contact with a corpse, you would not cut your hair for a period of time. And then at the end, when that vow has been fulfilled, you would shave your head and you would go to the temple and you would offer that. And you would offer a one-year-old uh, 
ram, a one-year-old ewe, a female uh, sheep, and, and other animals, and this is all part of the vow. Well, there's, there's more to the vow, but that would depend on the circumstances. The why. Why are they taking this vow? For what purpose? We don't know any of that. They're under a vow, but Paul is encouraged to purify himself. This seems to imply a different set of rituals, a different set of customs. So in the, the laws of, of Moses, there's a lot about clean and unclean, pure and impure. Paul has just come from all around the world, basically. He's been in contact with the Gentiles, and it is his mind to go to the temple and be a part of the, the worship there on Pentecost. Well, if you've been among Gentiles, according to the Jewish way of thinking, you're unclean. You've been in contact with them, and so you, to come into the temple, you would defile the temple. But there are purification rites that you can undergo, and if you undergo those, then you're no longer unclean, and you can participate as normal. Again, to Paul, he would probably say, there is no unclean anymore. Peter learned this lesson, right? We, we are all pure and forgiven because of Jesus. But to, to the Jews who aren't there yet, they, they, you know, they just know pure and not pure, clean and not clean. And Paul, you're definitely impure. You can't come into the temple. So he's going to undergo these purification rites, different than the Nazarite vow that these other four are under. But the idea is he's not only supporting them, he says, uh, James says, you pay for it. That is, when they have to offer these sacrifices, the ewes and the lambs and everything, you pay for those animals. Not them, but you. That shows that you are not only supporting them, but you also undergo your own purification rites so that people see, you know, you live it, you support it, and that argument that they have, that you teach contrary to the law of Moses, that you say our customs are like worthless, your deeds will show that's not true. So they won't, they won't have any argument against you. Your life will have shown otherwise. They've heard rumors, but now when they see Paul living here among them, he, he's following their customs. He's not showing offense to them. So that's, what this is about. A Nazarite vow for these four individuals. We don't know necessarily why, but it's probably connected to the worship uh, that would take place on Pentecost. And then Paul himself will undergo these purification rites because he's been away. He's been in the presence of Gentiles. And um, as we see, he, he is going to agree. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. That is, that's all of the stuff in Acts 15. So what's at play here is that, remember, Paul has come with representatives from these Gentile churches. They cannot go inside the temple. There are still these boundaries in the temple where Gentiles can only go so far, Women can only go so far, and the Jews that have been purified, that they're clean, they can go in further. The priests, you know, they can go at the Day of Atonement into the most holy place, but there are all of these rules on how far can you go. So the Gentiles, it's never a question of can they go into the temple. Everybody sort of knows that no, 
There is still that division there among the Jews. Christians don't run the temple. So they might think theologically otherwise, but they're still going to respect the Jews. What James does say, though, again, to affirm that this is not rehashing Acts 15. There are not disagreements between Paul and James on who is a Christian, who belongs to the church, and how. He's simply referring to these things. He doesn't say, oh, you brought Gentiles? Well, Paul, you know they have to be circumcised now. Now, you know, now that they're really among us. That, that is not what he brings up. Instead, it's, we have our ways here. Make sure those Gentiles don't get in trouble. Make sure they don't do things that we've already agreed they're not supposed to do, like uh, eating some of the, the food that's been uh, given to these idols or drinking blood um, from them and, and what whatnot. Yep? So did the temple consist then of, of believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, that they were both using the temple at the same time? By believing and unbelieving, you mean Christians versus... Christians. Those who have not, those who still were the Old Testament, uh, yeah, uh, looking for still looking for Messiah, not, not accepted. That's that's the general picture. Um, the the we don't have a lot of evidence because there hasn't been a lot of talk about what's happening in Jerusalem. So the only go back to the very beginning of Acts and remember when Peter and John they would go in in the temple and there they would be participating in worship and they're also like healing people and whatnot. And uh, that caused a little bit of, of friction that got them arrested and, and such. Um, from that, we don't know, did, you know, were, were they pretty much on the down low after that? Did, did they continue to go to the temple? But, you know, let's not heal people, you know, let's, let's not cause them to give a reason to, to, to kick us out or whatever. But, the fact that Paul, here a believing Jew, James, there, nobody's saying, but Paul, you know you can't go in there. We're, we're left with the impression of, yes, Christian Jews and still Jewish Jews, those that did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they're all there. Um, I would say they're probably doing different things there. Um, but yeah, they, they're, they're all, a part of this. And again, on a day like this, Pentecost, that they're going to be celebrating, you know, it's, it's a mob, it has to be a mob of people. So, you know, they're, how, how are they, how do they keep track of all of this stuff to make sure, like the Gentiles, how do you make sure that a Gentile isn't going into the inner part where they're not supposed to go? From Josephus, we know that they had signs in the temple that said Gentiles cannot go this far under penalty of death. So basically said, okay, Gentiles, we dare you. You can come in, but you, you will be killed and we're, you know, you've been warned. Uh, we're, we're not going to be held responsible for that. And that's where Paul is. They're going to try to pin Paul for that offense. Because they know he brought Gentiles with him. They know that he is worshiping in the temple. And their thought is he also brought those Gentile friends. James here doesn't allude to any of that. He just says, guys, you're, you're Gentiles. Don't, don't do things that the Jews would be offended at. Going into the temple would definitely be an offense. So at, that, at this time, are the Jewish Jews uh, a higher percentage? No, no way of knowing the demographics. Um, I would say here 
on this, again, on this occasion, Pentecost, Jews uh, are under more of that obligation to go to the temple. Um, for Christians, they have started to learn, I think, that the temple is, is more than this building. Um, but to know percentages of, you know, how many Jews were in the city, how many Christians, I, I, I don't think we have a, have a clue. We, we can, you can go back to some of those early numbers with, that, uh, we learned, you know, a thousand, uh, believed. Um, but how many, because that was during Pentecost too. How many of those were natives? How many of those were just pilgrims and then they would leave? Um, and then again, we're now, what, 25 years after, uh, Pentecost about. So time has, has passed and people move around. So the non-Christian Jews are coming for Passover. Pentecost. Passover's already happened. Jews believed in Pentecost. It was one of the, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's one of the feasts that they're always to celebrate. It's the feast of first fruits. Yeah. It's Pentecost. Yeah. They're not celebrating the Christian, what we celebrate at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 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 Same, same festival, but it, it now had a new meaning for Christians. Jews are still there for the first fruits. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's this conversation. It sort of sets the mood as Paul is going into Jerusalem. Not that we aren't already prepared for it. We know that Paul's going to Jerusalem and he knows something bad is going to happen. We know that he's been warned by others in the Holy Spirit. Don't go, Paul. Don't go. They're, they're, they're after you. And more confirmation of this. But he's not going to try to walk into trouble. He's, he, he does not do anything that deserves what will follow. He is showing every respect for the ways of the Jews, uh, again, that he would be uh, all things to all people. So it says that Paul took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. So he follows through on those instructions, not only for those four men, but, but for himself. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So the trouble starts from whom? Jews from Asia. So it, the, the trouble here is not really the, the, the native Jerusalemites. They were not the ones that were, you know, Paul's already in the temple now, and uh, there's not really a fuss, but the Jews from Asia. Now, there's two thoughts here. One is that just like we've seen happen in some of his missionary journeys, that those that oppose him, like, would follow him from city to city, and they, they would just keep bringing up more trouble. These Jews from Asia could have been that. And, you know, when we go back, uh, I didn't cover in great detail how he got to Jerusalem, but there was that one point where the one part uh, of the party went in the boat and then Paul went by land. You know, was he aware that people were following him and he was trying to, like, throw them off? Um, Luke doesn't tell us that. But these Jews from Asia are there and they're they're ready to fight. So... They either followed him or it's Pentecost. They wanted to come to Jerusalem for that feast. And while they are there, they just happen to see 
that this Paul, he is also there, and it immediately raises their rage and their wrath. So they are the instigators of this trouble. It happens from outside. So a fight that began uh, on another part of the world is brought here into Jerusalem, and they take, uh, they stir up the whole crowd, they laid hands on him. This is not like, let's pray for our brother Paul. This is like, they're tearing his clothes off and mob justice again. They're basically going to kill him. They cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. So there's the three accusations. He is teaching the people against the law, against the people, sorry, against the people first, that is Jews, uh, against the law, that is the law of Moses, and this place, the temple itself. Those are the three charges that they bring against him in this mob rule. Moreover, here's the other thing. He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So there is the assumption the Greeks, who are they talking about? Those other members of his party, they think Paul is in the temple. Well, we know that those guys came back from Asia and from Macedonia and Greece with him. He brought them into the temple too. Can you believe this guy? The only problem is their their assumption will be false. Uh, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, that was one of the people that Paul brought with him, uh, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they didn't see him in the temple with Paul. They just knew he was here around. And why wouldn't Paul do such a thing as this? Um, but he didn't because he respected the Jews. He knew that that would cause a problem. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and drag, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So what's going to follow is they're going to kill him. But they're smart enough to know shedding somebody's blood inside the temple, that's probably an offense against God. So we can't do that. We're going to drag him outside of the temple, and then the doors are shut. Is I think, kind of a symbolic way of saying you don't belong in here. You don't have any right to this temple. So he's basically kicked out, but the more severe thing is pretty clear what is to follow. They're going to stone him. They're going to kill him. But it just so happens that once they're outside of the temple, they're in the area where the Romans are going to be aware. Again, Roman power is responsible for Jerusalem. The the Jews in Jerusalem have a great deal of freedom, but ultimately the Romans are in charge. And especially on an occasion like Pentecost, like the Passover, when there are a lot more people in Jerusalem, the Romans know we need to keep a close eye to make sure nothing bad happens. We want to, above all things, keep the peace. Well, this immediately looked like an occasion that would require them to step in. And, and so it happens. So as, um, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune. This is the Roman official in charge of the cohort. That is uh, a station of soldiers that are there. There's probably about a thousand soldiers, uh, stationed, um, here in Jerusalem. That's, that's how many a tribune was in charge of. Um, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 
He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They, again, know if the Romans are here, let's let's lay low a little bit because they they don't want to lose that small autonomy, uh, that privilege that they have. The tribune then came up and arrested him. So now he is saved from mob rule. Mob rule... Paul didn't have a chance. He, he was going to die there. So it's actually good that he's now under the, the Roman authority because law and order and justice will be done. So he's under arrest, and he ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So the Roman officials, they don't, they don't know at all what's going on. They're not plugged into this. They just know something bad is happening here. We need to stop this mob and get some some sense here. What is going on? So they talk to the people, why are you doing this? What what has this guy done? Who is this person? We want to know. But as we found at Ephesus and other places before this, you're not really going to get a good answer from a mob. They they just know they want him dead. And that's what happens. So some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as this tribune could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, that is Paul, to be brought into the barracks And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. And again, this is not get him out of here. This is away with him. Let let him die. Um, there, There is no reason. There is no conversation with this mob. They only know that they want Paul dead. Should sound very familiar, right? There is no negotiation with the crowd when Jesus is being tried. They just know, crucify him, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate's like, why? What what has he done? He hasn't done anything. Crucify him, crucify him. They just keep shouting that. However, they're now at the barracks. So this is outside the, the temple. There is a fort that the Romans had built up where... um there's different archaeological reconstructions of it. Uh, there are some descriptions, again, from Josephus. It appears that it was a very tall fort so that it was built near the walls of the temple and they could actually see into the temple. So the it's higher than the walls of the temple. And again, that way, the Romans can't go into the temple. They know that, but they're always watching. They can keep an eye on things. And if there is trouble, there is that threat. We'll do whatever it takes to, to stop that. Uh, and, and so don't think, Jews, that you can hide in the temple. And indeed, there are a, a couple of instances in the history where uh, the Romans desecrated the temple, that they went into the temple when technically, according to the, the Jewish uh, laws, they should not have been allowed to do that. So it's this tall fort. They can see basically, you know, the surrounding area. Paul obviously is pretty safe there. Like I said, a thousand soldiers. There, there is a big crowd, a mob, whatnot, but the mob isn't about to like try to fight against a well-trained Roman army. Um, doesn't mean they don't want Paul dead, but they, they know their limits. But as Paul's here brought to the barracks, he does this really bizarre thing. Paul's like, Hey, can I have a word? a word. Yeah, I, I want to address the crowd. I want to talk to him. And no doubt the Tribune's like, the crowd is crazy, dude. What what, what could you possibly say? What do you want to say to this to this people that will change their minds? Um, and obviously, 
wanting to, again, try to end this, just get peace again, put this down, the Tribune asks a couple of questions to figure out who are you and what is this all about. And we learn one small bit. Um, Paul says to the Tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So the Tribune didn't know who Paul was at all, but now he says, oh, one, you know Greek. You, you don't just speak the language of the people, which would have been Aramaic, but you can talk to me in Greek and, you know, we can understand each other. That kind of marks him as an educated person, a little bit set apart. He, he, uh, he will associate with the Gentiles, speak their language, that kind of thing. And are you this Egyptian? Um, again, Josephus tells a little bit about this, uh, Egyptian. All we know from not only the New Testament, but from Josephus, is that this time in Jerusalem, um, not this exact time, but this like generation, you know, the, this hundred year period or so was marked by a lot of people claiming to be messiahs, uh, deliverers, people who would free the Jews from the subjection of the Roman Empire. Um, and this Egyptian was just another one of the many. Apparently, in his revolt, leading 4,000 people, uh, so he amassed a huge following, the Egyptian apparently disappeared. He was not dead, at least they didn't know he was dead, so they thought he's still out there somewhere, the Roman government did, and so they kind of had their eyes out. So again, when I say that the Romans are very weary of, of rioting, of uproars, of disturbances, it's not just they're paranoid. The, the Jews really hate the Romans and really are trying to overthrow them wherever they can get a chance. Um, and we learn about just one other figure, this Egyptian. We don't have a name for him or anything, but that's who apparently this tribune, the Roman tribune, thought Paul was. And obviously here Paul says, no, I'm not the Egyptian. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. You should have heard of Tarsus. It's an important place. I beg you now, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had been given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, that is, in Aramaic, in their language, and he speaks to them. And here, Paul goes through his whole story, again, to identify himself and, you know, to try to address these charges. He knows why they're against him, but he wants to straighten it out so that they would know that the things that they're saying against him, they're just not true. That, that Paul, he stresses a couple of things. He stresses his Jewishness, again, to show that he has unity with them. That as a Christian, Christians don't think of themselves, if they come from the Jewish part, they don't think of themselves as different than the Jews because they believe the same thing. It's just that hope for the Messiah that all Jews have, they now have the knowledge that Jesus fulfilled that hope. And so they follow Jesus as not somebody who did something new or led them into a different um, religion, 
but the the one path, the one way that they had been following all along. So Paul has no problem stressing his Jewishness because Jesus came to fulfill those prophecies, those promises given to the Jews. So he says, I'm a Jew. I've been, I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. So he was educated, raised in Jerusalem, even though he was born in Tarsus. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. This was a very famous Jewish rabbi. Uh, we talked about him uh, in, in one of the um, previous stories that Paul gave of his own life. Not just learning from him, but it was according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So he's throwing him a bone and he's he's realizing, look, I realize that you are concerned about the, the purity of our faith. I was concerned about those very things too. We're, we're one and the same. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So it was like, I get that you're trying to to persecute me. I did the exact same thing. I thought that was what God wanted from me. So He's, he's showing that he has a connection with them, but here's the change. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus." So Paul, up until this point, is saying, I I was living just like you, and I would have continued to live that way. But I was stopped. I was stopped by this Jesus. This Jesus who said, you're persecuting me. And this Jesus is now sending me to Damascus not to bind and arrest Christians, he he has something else that he wants me to do. And so what am I supposed to do as Paul? Like I was blind. I was blinded by this voice, by this light. Uh, I, I, I was helpless. So I was at the mercy of this command. So I followed it. Would you do anything different? And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
So here's the encounter now that he's brought to Damascus. He's brought to Ananias. And again, Paul includes the details. This Ananias, who is he? He's, he's friendly to the Jews. The Jews knew who this guy was. He, you know, he's not some radical. And as he addresses Paul, he talks about the God of our fathers. Again, there's, there's this continuity. This is not a new thing. They're still stressing, I believe everything that I'm doing, the voice that came to me and this uh, losing my sight and then uh, my sight being given to me again. It's all being done under the hand of God. Uh, and it has been appointed to, to, for Paul to know his will and to see the righteous one. Um, this again is, uh, is an allusion to that Messiah. He doesn't say the Messiah, but, but the righteous one. This is, uh, one way of, of talking about them because there isn't any of us who are righteous. The only one who's righteous is going to be God himself and the one from God. So you're going to be a witness. Okay. He's baptized. He doesn't really stress on all of that, but he's been changed and he's sent on his way. When he goes on his way, he returns to Jerusalem. And where does he go? He goes back to the temple. This is what he knows. And he fell into a trance and saw him saying to me. So that same one who appeared to him, he sees him again and says, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul basically says, after this great revelation, after this change, what is his first thought? His first thought is to go back to Jerusalem to worship there in the temple. And he implies that he has in mind to basically join up with this way, this group that he had been persecuting, that he too is now going to share about Jesus, the righteous one. The only problem is that while he's there in the temple praying, Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. Don't do that. You cannot stay here, Paul. Instead, go. Get out of town. I'm I'm not sending you to the Jews. I'm sending you someplace else. I'm sending you to someone else. I'm sending you to the Gentiles who are far away. And here, uh, the, the wording of this, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, kind of lost there in the Greek is, is the verb to, to send, apostle, uh, to send as this ambassador. So Paul gives here his commissioning. This is when he was sent as an apostle by Jesus to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is trying to go back to his loyalty to the Jews, that he is one of them, that, that he is a part of them, that he's zealous for God just like they are. And he didn't choose this way. God came. God came and changed his, his life completely. Instead of persecuting, he's now going to praise God and tell others about Jesus. He's going to proclaim that message. His first thought was to go to the Jews. Who else would he go to? But Jesus says, no, you're going to the Gentiles. So Paul is going to accept that part of himself that, that the Jews don't like, that he goes to the Gentiles, that, he, that he's among them, that he's like part of them. 
He's, he's not going to deny that. But the way that he talks about his, his life, it wasn't his idea. That was not his first inclination. He, he wants them to know, I, I, I'm not rejecting you. It's not like I don't want to be a part of you. It's that God said, if I kept doing this, you'd kill me. And so he wanted that message to go out and he sent me to the Gentiles abroad. And, and that's where I went. The crowd turns on him at this last thing. So it's unclear as some of the other speeches. Did Paul have more to say after this or was he done? But after he says, he sends me to the Gentiles, the crowd is in this uproar again. That's all they need to hear. All that he said so far, the loyalty, the voice, uh, why are you persecuting? Like the, they, they were listening to all of that. But go to the Gentiles. Don't stay here among these people. They're going to kill you. The crowd goes into an uproar. And uh, here again they say, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they're shouting, they start whipping up the dust, their cloaks in the air. Um, again, the, the, it's not violent. They didn't, you know, throw weapons or swords or stones at him. But they're making their will known to the tribune that he, he should give them over to them and, you know, let them have their way. Of course, the tribune can't do that. And, um, he's gonna just put him in prison. But then this final thing comes up. The normal routine here of justice is, okay, these, the crowd, they have a problem with him. The, the tribune tried to ask the crowd, what's, what's the charge? What did he do wrong? I've arrested him. We'll have a trial now, but I need to know what am I trying him for? Well, he didn't really get anything from the crowd. So the next stage is that he's going to interrogate the prisoner, you know, confess. What is it that you have done? And the normal routine for, for interrogation is flogging. That is that they beat them with a whip that uh, is, you know, the uh, like the cat of nine tails, you know, has uh, bone fragments or glass or rock at the end of it. Again, Jesus experienced this. Paul's going to be saved from it. But it's meant to basically just completely strip the skin from them so that they just, you know, confess and get it, get it over with. And then the trial can go on. They're about to do that with Paul. But then Paul slips this in. He hasn't said this up until this point to this Roman centurion, even though he's been arrested. He says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? That is, I haven't been tried. I haven't been found guilty of anything. How dare you beat me? Um, Roman citizen, citizenship is valuable. He has rights. One of those rights is that he cannot be beaten uh, without a trial. That, that is uh, a, a right that does not belong to all people. But Roman citizens have this right. And so when he says this, if the flogging would have happened, that would have been a miscarriage of justice on the tribune's part. He could have be held responsible for beating a Roman citizen, and he can go to jail himself for that. So this is really a serious thing, and uh, the Roman official is surprised to find out that Paul was born a Roman citizen. While this tribune, again, Roman citizenship is valuable, he wasn't born a citizen. He, he had to buy. He had to bribe his way in to the citizenship rules. And so Paul's status vis-a-vis this Roman tribune, Paul is actually, you know, on, on a higher rung and like, Okay, the tribune has a higher office, but Paul is a born 
and raised Roman citizen. He has that identity, which is a great boon to him and will save him. He's still going to be under arrest. There's still going to be a trial to figure out what's going on, but it's not going to happen in the way that they're going to beat Paul to try to interrogate him and to get everything out. Instead, there's going to be after another, there's going to be another way to figure out what's going on. And so we're going to next go to the Jewish council. Um, and do you as the, like, the justice system for the Jews, uh, do you have a charge against him? Um, and if so, then, you know, then maybe the trial can go forward. And in the, uh, the trial that is to follow, uh, Paul completely changes the argument. So far, the, the argument against Paul was that he's against the people, he's against the law, and he's against the temple. And Paul, once he's before the council, the Jewish council, he's going to turn this not into an argument about those things, but about theology, about the resurrection. And it's an incredibly keen move because immediately he gets a hung jury. The Pharisees who believe in the resurrection and who kind of, you know, may have been a little bit partial to Paul because he is this Pharisee and he has all of this you know, they are like, yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with this Paul guy. We're, we're cool. The Sadducees, however, those that do not believe in the resurrection, the Jews were divided on this. They don't like this, but they can't agree among themselves. And the disagreement is on theology. What's the Roman government supposed to do with that? You know, this is your problem, not ours, but the, the trial will sort of continue from here on out, but Paul's basically already won because once it's about theology uh, and there is a division of the people on that point, well, there, there's not going to be a conviction. And the Roman government is still trying to figure out what to do with it. Their issue going forward is going to be, how do we not anger the Jews? <laughs> how do we settle this issue that's divisive among them? And the Roman government doesn't really know. And so they're going to be dilly-dally, dilly-dallying. And that's where Paul finally ultimately says, I appeal to Caesar. Uh, enough of this. this. This isn't going to solve it. Because he knows that it being going to Caesar, again, he's done nothing wrong, illegal. It, they just don't like him because of the gospel. But that's not illegal. Uh, that's not going to get him into jail. Again, go back to the past. Paul already has on the books. Roman government in other places, they've been okay with him. They, they've seen him do nothing wrong. And so Paul's going to continue. All right, we didn't get through all of that section. Surprise, surprise. But uh, we made good headway, and uh, we'll, we'll get to uh, the second step here as Paul is going to go to Caesarea, and they're just going to continue to rehearse this stuff. And each time, Paul, he, he might change his message a little bit, nuance it a little bit, depending on who he's speaking for, uh, speaking to, but the point is always going to be remain the same. He's done nothing wrong. He, he is not a danger to anybody. Instead, he is being falsely accused because of this gospel that he brings. All right. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. 
Come and grow together in Christ with us.